Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that pretty much every sermon so far, we've been dealing with Paul's strong defense against the Judaizers. And this is week 15 in our series. So if you've been with us through all of those 15 weeks, you're probably feeling like, really, we're still talking about that? Well, yes. Paul made a big deal about this, but you'll be happy to know that this is the final section in Paul's defense before we're going to shift into the practical applications of sound doctrine, how that works out in chapters five and six. And so we're looking forward to that. But for those of you who maybe have joined us partway, I want to share just a quick overview of the context and all that we've covered so far in Galatians and how the Apostle Paul has been defending the gospel of free grace against the false teaching of the Judaizers. He started off by defending his own apostolic authority, and that's in chapters 1 and 2. It was a personal defense of why he has the authority to teach sound doctrine, and then In chapters 3 and 4, we enter into the doctrinal response of salvation by grace alone. And the Judaizers were not pleased. They were concerned that this new Christian faith, it really wasn't Jewish enough. They were demanding that if you were to become a real Christian, not only did you have to have faith in Christ, but you also had to follow the Jewish, Mosaic, civil, and ceremonial laws especially circumcision. And so, as we've been working our way through Galatians with the strength of Paul's response and his defense, we've noticed along the way how it can often sound like Paul is just casting aside the law or throwing it, uh, even trashing it. But we've been careful to explain the context and the difference between the cultural and the ceremonial laws and the moral law. But it's always important to note that Paul is not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not just setting it aside or dismissing it as unimportant. To do that, you would really have to isolate specific scriptures and be very selective. So today, in fact, what we're going to see is the exact opposite. We're going to see that Paul is not opposing the Old Testament. But he's going to help us to rightly understand God's plan all along in light of the revelation of his work through Jesus Christ. Let's look together at how that begins in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He says, oh, okay, you want to be under the law, do you? Well, Do you have any idea what the law really says? In verse 21, Paul says, okay, you really want to be under the law? Then do you not realize that the law itself tells you not to be under the law? You want to talk about law keeping? Let's talk about law keeping. Let's talk about that for a moment. And this is not only a strong response to the Judaizers, but it's a response to anyone who would say that you earn right standing with God because of your good deeds. Anyone that claims salvation depends on what you do. And yes, that's what happened to the Galatians. They had given in to this teaching. And the truth is, we often do the same thing. We forget that Christianity is about liberty and not slavery. 
We make Christianity a list of rules or traditions, not even because we really think that's what the Bible says, but because like the Galatians, we listen to people tell us, hey, if you really want to be a good Christian, here's what you have to do. And then almost before we even realize it, we found ourselves in a place where we are evaluating our spiritual standing by what we do for God rather than what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So we're not just tossing aside good works. That's not what Paul is saying. That's uh, not what's in our text today. The difference, and this is key, the difference is not so much in what you do, but why you do it. Don't miss this. The difference is why. If you're saying to yourself, for example, I'll do this good thing and it will rack up some more points for me and God will like me better. If you're saying that, you're a legalist. The key always comes down to motive. And so we have to do a heart check because legalism is rooted in a prideful and sinful heart. So this is probably why Paul begins the section as he does in verse 21. Oh, you think you're doing good with the law. Let's talk about that for a moment. In verse 22, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael and Hagar, and one by the free woman, that's Isaac with Sarah. And the Judaizers had probably been telling the Galatians something like this about Abraham. They said when God first made his promises, all of the covenant promises, he said they were only for Abraham and his children. Well, we have Abraham's promise because we are direct descendants through Isaac. But don't worry, you can receive that promise too. All you have to do is become a child of Abraham the Jewish way, you know, by getting circumcised. You see, they had placed all of their hope in this external sign, as if the acts of being Jewish are what counted. It was one of the Jews' greatest and constant boasts. We are of our father Abraham. We are secure because we're Jewish. We're in the covenant. We're the seed of Abraham. John the Baptist must have come across this attitude as well, because in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, he says, don't say to one another we're safe just because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. And I love this. He says, God can create children of Abraham out of the stones. Oh, you want to brag about being children of Abraham? That's no big deal. And so Paul's response here is similar in the book of Galatians. Paul says, you want to talk about Abraham? Okay, let's talk about Abraham. And he already has thus far in our working our way through Galatians, even back in chapter three, he says about Abraham, that Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul pointed out how the scripture really points to Abraham's faith, not works. And that's what counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul has already spent a good deal of attention on Abraham. But here, it's almost as if he saved his best argument for last. Because he completely flips the script on those who had boasted that they were sons of Abraham. Look again in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to 
to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now, before we work through these next couple of verses, I want to go back and remind ourselves of what happened with Abraham and Sarah. And so all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, what we find is that Abraham and Sarah are upset because they don't have children. In verse 2, it says, Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. They have no children. And the servant who's in charge of their household was to be their heir. They're quite old, and they're worried that time is running out. But God says, this man's not going to be your heir. You're going to have your own son. He will be your heir. So even when it seems impossible, God's plan was still to give Abraham a son. And Abraham needed to trust in God to fulfill his promise. This passage here in chapter 15 is the same place where God takes Abraham outside and says, look up into the heavens and count the stars. That's how numerous your offspring will be. And yet, by chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah still haven't conceived and their faith begins to weaken. And they create a plan that they think will use their own resources to help God fulfill his promise. Sarah gives Hagar, who is her servant, to Abraham so that she can bear him a son. And in Genesis 16:15 it says, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham named him Ishmael. And well, as you might could guess, this didn't create a great relationship between Sarah and Hagar. Remember this, because we're going to come back to it later. But Abraham stopped relying on God's power to fulfill his word, and instead he relied on his own power, his own ingenuity, to get a son. The plan that they devised in desperation, in a moment of weak faith, it might have produced a son, but it wasn't going to produce an heir. So when Paul says in Galatians 4.23 that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, what it means is that he was a product of self-reliance. Abraham and Sarah thought that they could bring God's blessing by, you know, just prompting God a little bit. So then 14 years later, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 16, God says to Abram and his wife, Sarah, you will have a son. God says, I will do this. Unless there be any doubt that it was God's work alone, all natural hope of bearing a child had ceased in their bodies. You see, Sarah had aged out of the childbearing years. And in chapter 18, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You see, in contrast to the self-effort, fleshly way, this is God acting to fulfill his word. By what means? Well, we can flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 to see. In verse 11, it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, 
even when she was past the age, since she had considered him faithful who had promised. So how? By faith. Even though it seemed so impossible that she laughed, Sarah did conceive and bear a son named Isaac. And Isaac was not born according to the flesh because his birth was miraculous. Not in the sense that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but in the sense that the Holy Spirit carried out a miracle in their bodies to make it possible. Abram learned that the only acceptable response to God's promise is to trust in that promise, not works of the flesh, to try and bring it about by our own efforts. And so in Galatians, when Paul says that the child with Hagar was the child of the flesh, he's, he means it happened naturally. The, the child with Sarah then was supernatural, meaning it, there was a not any way that this was going to happen of natural means without God's intervention. It's a contrast, and we're going to see that being developed into a lesson throughout our text today. One son comes by works and the other by faith. One born a slave, the other born free. Ishmael and Isaac represent two entirely different approaches. It's law against grace, flesh against spirit, and self-reliance against divine dependence. Paul takes all of these historical facts, the two mothers and the two sons, and he uses it to teach a lesson. Let's jump back into Galatians 4, 24 where he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Press pause. We need to pause here for a moment and I need to say that this section of scripture has caused quite a stir among preachers and scholars and Bible commentators. The history of allegorical teaching among Jewish rabbis and within the early church has resulted in some very, very large problems. Hidden teachings and secret meanings They've basically been created for everything within the entire Bible. It wouldn't even be worth listing examples because the list never ends. And yet, even though there's such a massive history of abuse and hurt, people still seem to be overly interested in the secret meanings of the Bible. If you've not taken the time to read the clear and the plain words of the Bible, but you find yourself interested in the cable TV show about the secret meanings of the Bible, consider what that says about you. Now, I don't want to spend way too much time on this one side note, but I do want to make sure that we understand the danger of allegorical interpretation. Whether it's from trying to use some type of number system to discover a hidden meaning in the text, or someone recounting this deep meditative vision where they gained a higher understanding of the secret interpretation of the Bible, that is not what Paul is doing. That's not what we should listen to, and it's not what we should attempt. That doesn't mean that we need to run from this text as some scholars have attempted you really, you would not believe the amount of words that people use trying to explain why Paul actually didn't mean allegory here. I about drowned in all of those words this week. The word, though, is in fact allegory. And we don't have to be afraid of that. We can be confident that this is God speaking in his word. But it also doesn't mean that we need to begin to search for hidden meaning 
We have the full and the complete word of God in our hands. God's revealed plan in his word is not lacking information or clarity. You don't need some super special decoder key to understand the Bible. All right, let's jump back in. With that said, verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, it can get a little complicated, but to take it step by step, there are two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, with their two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and they stand for two covenants which correspond to two cities, the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. So we provided this visual chart to help you see those connections. And the point that Paul is making is all of the attention has been on Abraham as father. But allegorically, it becomes more important who your mother is. Hagar and Ishmael represent the attempt to gain blessing on our own strength, while Sarah and Isaac represent the supernatural blessing given entirely by God. And Paul says these represent two covenants. Now, a covenant is just a binding agreement that God makes with his people. So these women, they're two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. You might ask, what could Hagar have to do with the giving of the law? Well, the key here is the attitude of self-reliance. Remember that heart check we talked about earlier. When the law was given at Mount Sinai, instead of humbling themselves and trusting God to help obey his command, Israel responded with confidence. All of the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't have the hearts that were inclined to trust in God or to truly depend on him. Paul has already shown this as we've been working through the text of Galatians. And so, just like Hagar and Abraham, they depended upon their own resources, on on their own. They tried, just like Abraham and Hagar, to produce a son. You see, on their own, when we do things on our own, it doesn't work out. Ishmael would not be the heir. And so when the Jews tried to keep the law on their own, all they produced was legalism. And they would inherit nothing. Just as Ishmael was born according to the flesh, so the law which was offered was not received because, as Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, It was weakened by the flesh. So at Mount Sinai, what we find is a group of people who were a total mess. If you remember the story, as Moses is up getting the law from God, the people had started idol worship while he was on the mountain. And you may recall that that's why as he comes down, those first set of stone tablets were broken by Moses as he returned and he was overwhelmed with frustration and anger at just how weak the people were. 
They had already gone astray. We find the people weak. The law comes to a sinful and fleshly people for whom the law therefore becomes an instrument of sin and death. Romans 8.3 says it this way, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Jump ahead to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, this is rich and good stuff. And this allegory shows the difference between spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom, the flesh and life in the spirit. Those who would try to justify themselves by keeping of the law, they are slave children of Hagar. But those who are justified by faith in Christ have life. This is good news. Praise God, it would make you almost want to sing out in praise. And that's exactly what Paul does. In verse 27, he says, For it is written, which is from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. And no, it was not written specifically about Hagar. It was about the, uh, the exile in Babylon and how the Jews have been taken into captivity. But Paul uses this moment and you'll see it come alive, as a moment to rejoice and how it applies to Sarah and the new Jerusalem. He says, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, one who does not bear. Rejoice, Sarah. Rejoice, heavenly Jerusalem. Rejoice, church, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. You see, at one time, barren, now there is rejoicing. Because Gentile converts would soon fill the new heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem, the Judaizers Jerusalem, will not inherit God's promised blessing. But God is at work. God is fulfilling his promise. It may have seemed that he wasn't. It may have seemed like we needed to take matters into our own hands, but God is at work making the unfruitful bear fruit, filling and building the church with Gentile converts, not Jewish converts, but Christians. God is building and filling his church. Now, 
now you. Paul turns his attention and speaks back to the Galatians. Now you, brothers, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. God's promise to Abraham is not simply for the Jews as Jews. It is for every believer, whether Jew or Gentile. In verse 26, he says, for in Christ Jesus, sorry, in verse 26 of chapter 3, he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then just a few verses past that, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. What this means is that anyone, anyone who has faith in Jesus is God's true child in the line of Isaac, born again, free by the promise of God. But, verse 29, just as at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now, I told you earlier to remember something because we're going to come back to the relationship between Hagar and Sarah. And I wanted to save it for this part here, for this verse, because Paul recalls that relationship here in verse 29 by talking about Ishmael, born according to the flesh, who's persecuting Isaac, who's born according to the spirit. And can I just tell you that this verse, this moment, this place was probably the sweetest part of the entire text for me. Anyone who reads scripture knows that if we follow Christ, we should expect persecution. That's not new. Jesus taught this with complete certainty. But for whatever reason for me, I always thought of this persecution as coming from some people who seem so far from God pagans, maybe completely and totally secular, as if I was going to be persecuted from people who were approaching me wearing like Team Satan t-shirts or something. So when I read this, God brought this passage to life for me. And I want to take just a moment to share a personal note. My story is one of growing up in church. And for anyone who's heard my testimony from Regeneration, you know some of the greatest moments of hurt and pain that I've ever experienced came from legalism within a church community. These hurts held me captive for so long. Not only was I the recipient of some really nasty legalism, but in some ways, I became a legalist myself. I know what it feels like to be stuck in that. I know what it feels like to have a legalist tell you that you need to fix up your life more, look better, act better. better. Otherwise, you shouldn't even call yourself a Christian. I know that version of persecution all too well. I know what it feels like to be told that you're not good, that you should be ashamed to even call yourself Christian. And so this text came alive for me. And let me summarize a lot by just saying, it was another sweet moment of God healing me personally. You see, friends, legalists have always been the greatest persecutors of Christianity. I'm not sure where I got the Team Satan t-shirt idea from, 
because historically it's not people outside pagan secular if you think about it the greatest persecution of christians has always come at the hands of legalists believe me those people who have determined that the only way to god is through their own works those people have always been the greatest persecutors of christians because they look at people who accept things by faith and they might not be wearing the Satan's team t-shirt, but this absolutely fits Satan's pattern. And so Paul says, don't be surprised. Ishmael types will persecute Isaac types. Those who spend all of their energy trying to earn favor from God, they are none pleased with those who might receive God's favor freely. It doesn't feel fair. And all of that personal injustice rages up within until it spills out as persecution. This is what it looked like for Ishmael. You see, he was 14 years old when Isaac was conceived. And he had spent 14 years of his life growing up and being the representative who would produce God's blessing but then Isaac was born, and all the attention shifted to Isaac. And in Genesis 21, they even threw a little celebration party for Isaac. It would have been about three years old. And it says when the child grew and when he was weaned, Abraham made this great feast on the day that he was weaned. But Sarah, she saw that. She saw something happen with Ishmael. Hagar the Egyptian, he, she had born the child Ishmael and he was laughing, mocking, joking. And so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Here's what you have. A 17 year old Ishmael teasing and mocking a three year old Isaac. You see Paul's point was that Christians should expect exactly the same kind of treatment that Isaac received from his big brother. When he says in verse 29, so also it is now, it was happening in Galatia. And friends, it still happens today. Christians should be prepared for this. If we just want people to like us, then we're never going to make a very good Christian. Martin Luther said it like this, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he's a Christian. And Paul even quotes from Genesis 21 as he writes in verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, we know that Sarah had not been okay with Hagar from the very moment that Hagar conceived. And here we see the culmination of that conflict. When Paul quoted Sarah's words, it was a not too subtle way of saying that the Galatians needed to drive out the Judaizers and all of their legalism right out of the church. Can you imagine what that felt like? How that landed with the Judaizers? Paul didn't hold back, and friends, we cannot either. If salvation comes by grace, then the church cannot tolerate 
salvation by works. We must stand firm against legalism, not only because it means standing firm in persecution, but also because of the false doctrine that it produces. We cannot let legalism take root within our hearts or within our church. And so, friends, we need to take a moment right now and ask God to cast every last trace of legalism out of our hearts. If we are still working to gain God's acceptance, we need to realize that we are in spiritual slavery. It's not just a matter of working harder, because no one who prefers to live in their own strength as opposed to trusting God, no one like that, will be saved. Salvation is only by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. This is why we cannot find salvation in any other religion. The last verse in our section. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You hear what he says? You're an Isaac. You are free. Don't turn from your freedom back to slavery. You are free. So be free. Let's be free and rejoice. Let's be free and full of joy because this is good news indeed. Amen? Amen. God, we praise you for the good news of freedom in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it wasn't from our own efforts because we confess how often we fail. Were it not for the righteousness of Christ, for his perfect life given for us, we would have no hope. So God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and praise your name for adoption. We pray in Christ, our Lord. Amen.